You're listening to the Brand Builders Podcast with your hosts, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. Welcome to another award-winning Brand Builders Podcast powered by the Dunstan Group. My name is Brian Young, and we are here with the president of the Dunstan Group, Scott Dunstan. And we are also here with Cam Marston, who is the president and owner of Generational Insights, which is an organization that provides clients the link between generational and demographic shift in the workplace and marketplace. Uh, we had the pleasure of, of hearing Cam speak a couple of weeks ago, and we're really excited to learn more about the specific actions and things that he can do that changes the way not only an organization but an individual can sell, market, manage, and lead, all while throwing in some big doses of humor to really make that pill easier to swallow. So we're so excited to have you on our Brand Butters podcast, and welcome, Cam, and we're ready to hear your story. Thank you for the invitation. I'd like your listeners to please lower their expectations for the quality of content that they're about to receive, okay? That is not true. We heard him speak, and he had the entire Hood Hargit Breakfast Club uh, laughing, but also uh, really understanding how we can approach business with uh, multiple different generations, because everybody is different. Um, but I also think that we're a lot more similar, I, I, I would I would say, than, than people think. Well, there are... I would agree. True generational biases and preferences within the workplace and the marketplace. And those are the ones that we study and do our best to uncover and to deliver to our clients in actionable ways. In other words, you're going to be selling this product to this group. They prefer it this way. However, I would agree with you. There are universal even and perhaps even timeless parts of people. Uh, you know, they they like authenticity, something you and I have talked about. They like authenticity. They want to be liked. They People do business with people that they like. People do business with people that they think are like themselves. This is not generationally based. That's just throughout time, and, and it's a, a way of connecting with people. So we study the generational components, but there's an overarching theme that cannot be segmented generationally. At some point, there was something that said, hey, man, we're on to something here. We need to investigate this further or even start a business. I think you've been at it for over 22 years now. 22 years. That's right. I'm curious, like, how in the world did you get into this line of business? What was the trigger and how did this all begin? Well, there's the short story and then there's the truth. Which one do you want? <laughs> Both. <laughs> Both, man. <laughs> the, and, and the business began... In Charlotte, when my wife and I lived here, we were here for 10 or 12 years. We, we, she and I debate about how long we were here. I was asked to do focus groups for uh, what would be uh, regional organizations, local and regional organizations. They were having turnover issues, and they couldn't explain why the turnover was happening. And they didn't feel that the employees, uh, the exit surveys, et cetera, were giving the leadership of these companies the truth of why the turnover. So they said, we need a third party to come in and begin to ask these questions. So I was hired to begin do, doing focus groups for them, as well as exit surveys. And after several years of doing this with many different companies, if you would imagine a wall full of three ring binders of data that we had gathered. So we do the research and we present it back to them, do the research of a different project, present it back to them. What it led to is a wall full of data. And what I did was essentially, metaphorically, take all these three ring binders full of information, smash them together and try to find the trends. And we were able to identify these trends. And then I went to the HR groups that were local to say, I think I've got some workforce trends that you would be interested in here. Do you have a slot at your next uh, luncheon for me to come give an overview of what we're finding? And they said, yeah, uh, six months, we're looking for a speaker. Why don't you put yourself down and give us your trends there? 
about the same time, Time Magazine came out with a cover article on Generation X, which identified the very same trends that I had found in my research. So in the presentation to the HR groups, I said, here's what we found. And incidentally, Time Magazine has identified these things too. They're calling this group Generation X. They're turning over because they are not happy in their jobs. They don't like their jobs. And we foresee this trend going on. Um, so these HR groups said, that's fantastic. Love this information. Would you come deliver that to my management team at my workplace? And I said, well, we're here to kind of, you know, I'm not, we're looking for more focus group opportunities. I'm not sure that's really what we're meant to do. And they said, well, what if you, we pay you to deliver this research? And I went, oh, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I considered opportunity. selling the research that way. And that began what it is today. We have a, I have a seminar company. We do a lot of keynote speeches. We do a lot of research. We do, um, today we customize training and development seminars that all came out of this effort that began here in Charlotte 20 some odd years ago. And today is somewhat nationwide where we go and deliver this content. I'm here today to work with BB&T this afternoon. Uh, was yesterday in New Orleans working with Hancock Bank. All that came out of this content that we developed 20, not that we developed 20 some odd years ago, that I identified 20 some odd years ago, and we continue to update. So it's interesting. You just mentioned uh, BB&T and Hancock Bank, and um, you've gotten the opportunity to work with a lot of large corporations, but did it not always, I mean, you didn't have Coca-Cola calling you the first week. How did that kind of ramp up? And and really, where did, uh, I want to say like the big success happened where you're like, wow, I have this, you know, Fortune 50 company that just called me and they want me to bring my analytics to the table. Tell us kind of how that 22 years looks and where did it really kind of go? Damn, we really got something here. Most of my work today exists out of referrals. Hancock Bank yesterday, BB&T uh, today, next week is General Mills. All comes out of referrals from people that have seen it or heard it or heard my radio show or podcast or the columns that I write. So the, the work that I get today is referral driven. But I remember back in the day, and I can't remember when it was, but a guy from GE came up to me from a presentation and said, I'd like more information on you. And I remember, and he gave me his card. And I thought, if GE is interested in this, I might be on to something. GE has changed shape tremendously today versus when they were introduced me to them. And uh, I worked with this guy. His name is Damian Thomas. I worked with him for a while and developing and the content. I took it from an HR focus, which it had existed to up to that time. And he said, if you can apply this to a sales focus, we're very interested. And worked for a year with him, wrote a book on selling and, and, the, and the, how the generational components matter to selling. And I reached out to him about a year later. Again, he, had been, he and I had been in touch. I said, I think I'm ready. And he put me on the road with GE. We did 20 dates across the U.S. and Canada. And I remember thinking, if GE's buying it, that is validation. All a lot of other corporate organizations want to know. And this is back in the day. This would not be today. If GE's buying it, we want to know. And that's when I felt like this is legit. I think there's a future in this. Previously, I had been kind of treading water, wondering what I was going to do until I grew up. And suddenly I thought, I, I think we're on to something here. And that was... The, uh, perhaps thus far, the biggest endorsement of my career was when those people from GE corporate said, we want more of this. Do you see differences in Generation X and, and the millennials? There are differences, mainly around sociability. And I'm going to play some big generalizations here. 
the millennials are a much more sociable generation. They, they've been, uh, the, the, the parody of them is the play dates and the groups and, uh, that they were raised in. But think about this. The, the Generation X was the last generation that was educated in grade school, elementary school, high school in rows. The Xers sat in rows facing the back of the head of the kid in front of them. And it gave somewhat some independence and self-reliance. Education trends changed as the millennials came into school, coincided with the millennials. It was not intentionally changed because of the millennials, but it coincided with the millennials entering school, and they were then put around tables. They faced each other, and they began the group learning efforts, and the tables were identified with names. This is the green table and the red table, and often they were identified with animals. These are my giraffes, and these are my elephants, etc., and this inward-facing part of this millennial generation's life, now I'm inward, I'm talking about facing one another, uh, imprinted, a biological term, imprinted, and it has created a much more sociable generation. Furthermore, the Generation Xers were what's called the latchkey kid syndrome, the latchkey kid generation. Many of us, and I raise my hand here, came of age at home alone with both parents needing to work. It was an economic necessity at that time. That was certainly the case in my household. And we became somewhat independent and perhaps going to the far end of that spectrum, aloof, distant, self-reliant. And when we enter the workplace, uh, we are often the ones that are not great team builders. The Generation Xers, and I'm an Xer, are often the ones that said the best boss and manager and teammate I can be is the one that leaves you alone to do your job. I'm going to give you distance and space. The best work you do is when you're left alone to perform. And they're trying to manage or lead or work with a millennial generation who's a very sociable generation. So it is a clash in what makes a good teammate, what makes a good employee, what makes a good work environment. Um, so yeah, they are different. However, I want to go back to our opening comments. There are overarching themes. We love our children. We bleed when we're cut. We get our feelings hurt. All that kind of stuff matters to Generation Xers just like it does the millennials. But the functioning of the workplace, the functioning of the marketplace, the touches that we have in a given day are different from those two generations. You mentioned um, in your in your speech that we got to the, the pleasure of, of listening to how managers that are in Gen X, how they fail when they're managing millennials, specifically on communication, but ultimately just walking up and saying, hey, how was your day? How's your family? How was your weekend? Can you go into some details and maybe give some of our, our listeners some advice if you are a manager in Gen X and you are managing millennials and maybe you're going over turnover, maybe you're not keeping some of your best employees, and what can they do to really get the best out of that generation that works for them? Uh, there are many facets to that question, and it's a good question to ask. I find that the Gen X management and leadership style is causing more disharmony and turnover in the workplace today than any other single factor. And it is because of what we said a moment ago, that the Xer wants to lead from afar. And he or she truly feels in their bones, this is what other people want. However, it's when they come out of that shell, come out of that attitude, let's say, it's not a shell, come out of that attitude and realize that they need to engage their workforce interpersonally, eye to eye, become interested in them, that they see a change in the behavior, the loyalty, the work ethic, however you define that. And it also impacts recruiting because a new hire will come scope out the new workplace and get a feeling of happiness, get a feeling of harmony. You know, this is not a kumbaya conversation and rainbows and unicorns, but they get a feeling of harmony, 
of people wanting to be there. So what I coach my exer managers on, and in fact, it was in Charlotte here with a, one of the banks that I learned this many years ago. You need to come out. You need to engage. You need to act interested. This is perhaps not your bias, but you got to get out of your bias. And, and the exers have now, it's been a while, generally moved out of um, uh, being on the team to leading the team. And that step away from the team to now turning back and looking at the team and managing and leading the team has been a difficult step because they say, now that I'm the boss, I'm going to leave everybody alone. We previously had a, be a baby boomer team leader, and all he or she wanted to do was have meetings every day. Now I'm going to change that, and we're going to, we're going to let everybody do their job. Well, what I advise them is to get out of that team but become very interested in each individual, pull the group together on a regular basis to have conversations. What are we learning? What's changed since last week? Who needs help? Who needs help doing what? How can I help you? What's my best use of your time? And then afterwards, how are you doing individually? What's going on? Your, your baby turned one years old. What's going on with that? Tell me about that. But that's, that change of behavior generates a response to the team, particularly full of millennials, that is step one in creating a high-performing team that this guy likes me, she likes me, she's interested in me, she's investing herself or himself in me, and I'm going to go to the wall for him. Last week, I got a text message, middle of the day, from a woman in New York City who was at an awards conference for women in uh, financial services. She said she had took a, taken a picture of a woman on the stage and texted it to me and said, Cam, this woman just cited you as the woman that turned her career around. And I looked at the picture and I said, I have no idea who she is. And she said she was in one of your audience years ago. You defined the Generation X manager. It landed straight in her soul. She realized you were talking about her and people like her. She changed her behaviors. And five years later, she's getting an award on the stage that she said in her comments wouldn't have happened unless you had pointed that out to her. And I thought, well, this is pretty cool. Why isn't this on the national news? <laughs> you know, it's one of those, it's good. It's, yeah. good. it's a good story. Yeah. One of those things that I that that I struggle with, frankly, is I go in and I deliver comments like you heard a couple of weeks ago, and I don't know what happens to them. People go on, and they never call me to say, "Here's what's happened since uh, since your presentation, since I heard what 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 you said, or since I read what you've written." It was one of the few and rare times that I got feedback that what I'm saying is does matter. And uh, this woman went so far as to say I was one of the, my content, not me, but my research was one of the things that turned her career around and she was now receiving an award. And I just, you know, leaned back in my chair, patted myself on the back, gave myself a high five all alone and went back to work. I mean, I think that's an amazing story and speaks to I, I, probably the many of stories out there of people that had the same exact experience and listening to your speech. So it would almost be interesting if you're listening to this, like shoot Cam an email and tell him how you changed, you changed your life based on that. Um, one thing that I, I was very interested in, and, and this is kind of something that me and my wife go through is you figure out kind of what your love language is. Right. And, and I'm very fascinated with why millennials now have to have that reassurance. They have to be told, you know, oh, you're doing a great job. Um, ask about their weekend, get really interested in their life. Is that kind of uh, 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 the validation because their parents created that? Did their their peers create that? I am a millennial. Did did us texting each other and telling anybody how cute we are and everything work out? Like how how did that change from people that they need the validation on a consistent basis? And millennials feel like they they want that more than just accomplishing a goal. It's, it's, you got to be told how great you are 
and then accomplish the goal. Does that make sense? Sure. I think it comes out of two areas. One is the parenting trends that have created the generation. Now, one of the things that I think a lot of people out there like to do is bash the millennials. They're this, they're that. We need to realize, as a society, we need to realize that who this generation is today has been created by the people that are parents, that are the bosses, the managers, the teachers, the coaches. They did not develop the way they are, quote unquote, whatever that is, on their own. They were shaped. So if you don't like it, you're responsible. If you're, you you don't have to like it, but you do have to raise your hand and say, I am partially responsible for this. So there are two things. Number one is the parenting trends, a lot of attention, a lot of praise, a lot of uh, the, the baby boomers are the original helicopter parent generation and the millennials are their children. So they gave their children an extraordinary amount of attention and protection. Second, though, is social media. Posting something on Instagram and feeling validation with the likes, with the comments, etc. It's a dopamine hit to see that you've been liked. Uh, your commentary has been liked. And that need for commentary from the outside continues outside of social media as well, such that in the workplace, how am I doing? Can you give me a like? Can you make a comment on this? If you've been raised in an environment where comments were showered on the the product, the effort, the the whatever you do, uh, and then are addicted, and I, I use that term literally, to the social media that's out there and the desire to be recognized through that social media, it only makes sense that in the workplace uh, that, that that would continue. It, you, you don't separate it. It's who it's a part of who they are today. Time may change that, but a part of who they are today. So there's two things. There's parenting, and I think the influence of social media has created this need or this want that exists in the workplace today, the marketplace as well. Now, Time changes things. Maturity changes things. You've got children. Children, I assume we all, uh, once those kids become a part of your life and mortgages and workplace issues, et cetera, creep up, who knows if social media will continue to dominate the landscape? I don't know. I don't know. But for a number of this generation who, you may recall from our conversation two weeks ago, the transition to adulthood is happening much older than ever before. Therefore, this adultolescent stage is what I call it, is lasting longer, which would mean that these trends that you and I are talking about are going to last until older ages. That's fascinating. And you mentioned a story, which I want to, I want to tell real quick, is about how parents created the generation of millennials. And you, and you used your daughter as an example, and you showed us ribbons on your PowerPoint, and it was an 11th place swimming ribbon in a six-lane pool was your joke, which was hilarious. Yeah. Um, and you said, you know, when, when my daughter got up on that block and was ready to swim, she didn't tell me that I needed validation and I needed something at the end when I got there. We created that, right? We created the 11th place ribbon because we wanted to, to say, here you go, honey, congratulations. And I think that's a great example of how parents created what is now a millennial. Um, but I think it's fascinating also what millennials will be able to do through social media. And it will be interesting to follow those trends. But I kind of want to shift gears here. I feel that you are, I don't want to say the founder of content, but you've always focused on content. You started your own broadcast radio show, which is regionally broadcast in um, Alabama, which is called What's Working with Cam uh, Marson Radio Show. You've written books. You've been on CNBC for two years as a columnist. Tell us, um, how did you... Number one, realize like, hey, if I can get the content out there, this is going to not only 
you know, elevate my brand, but it's also going to be able to educate the people on what I'm trying to get through. And when did that kind of click? Like, man, creating good content is, is very, very important. Now you hear everybody talking about it. Oh, you got to have content, got to have content, got to have content. So, so tell me about that. Cause it seems like in the early stages, you were already doing it before people even realized that this is something that you need to do to help build your brand. My early model, and this may seem odd, this is somewhat of a non sequitur here, was the Grateful Dead. Now, I'm not a deadhead, but they gave away their music. They gave it away. Record it. Have at it. Have fun with it. Now, when I first jumped in the business, we would be very leery of having any recording done of our presentation. We protected it religiously. Uh, but I looked at the Dead's model and said, look at these people who are loyal to these people because of the way they give their content away. So I began with an effort of saying, I need to create valid content and push it out. I was, uh, uh, there may have been others, but I wasn't aware of them. But one of the front runners, and if you want a copy of my slides, I'm happy to give you the slides. I can say that to every audience. I'm giving it away if that's what you want. And there were people out there that were counseling me against that. No, that's your content. They're going to steal your content. No, I'm going to give it away. I've got to believe that um, just like the Grateful Dead, other people can play Grateful Dead songs, but... Uh, no one's, they're still going to come listen to the Grateful Dead play their songs. Other people can give the Cam Marston content out, but they're still going to come to me to hear me deliver it because I've got to deliver it in a solid way. So I began to develop content early on that I said needs to be easily understandable to the busy executive and actionable. I'm going to develop it in such a way that people will be able to do something with it on a regular, on an easy to do regular basis. So everything I wrote, I always tried to end with bullet points of do this. Every video I recorded, uh, I'd like to give information, significance of the information, and then do this about it. And to me, content was important to, to deliver and give away. And I think it's worked. You know, There are certainly other people out there that may have more seminar materials or downloadable videos, etc., but I feel like my effort to develop and deliver and give away the content as much as possible has been one of the uh, things that has continued to keep me relevant in the marketplace. How did you start a radio show, number one? And um, what is your radio show about? I've, 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 I'm not going to lie. I have not gotten a chance to listen to it, uh, but I would love to, to stream it and check it out. But tell me about the actual radio show that that you do broadcast regionally to everyone in Alabama and, and even more if, it, if there are other areas. Yeah, I, um, it's a labor of love. I, it's not quite profitable. If it is, it's like in the sense, uh, you know, it's, but uh, <laughs> doing it for the love, doing it for the love. Uh, Same here. I, there you go. <laughs> so there's a long story and I'll keep it brief. I turned 50 two weeks ago. All right. And as the 50th birthday was coming, I said, I'm going to start doing more of what I want to do and less of what I feel like I should be doing. I've earned the right. I'm 50 years old. I got fewer ahead, years ahead of me than are behind me, likely. So I'm going to kind of get more into what I always wanted to do. And there were two things on the top of that list. Now, there are other things that aren't work-related, but uh, there are two things on the top of that list. Number one, I want to start a radio show. I have an infinite curiosity of the people that I meet, and it becomes a burden for them. If I were to call you up and say, hey, I've read about you, I've seen your business, can I spend an hour asking you questions? You'd say, that's a strange and odd question. But if I call you up and say, hey, can I spend an hour interviewing you on my radio show? Most people will say, yeah, man, I'd love that. I'll, I'll cancel the family vacation to be on the radio. Secondly, I love broadcast radio. 
the podcast world is thriving, and uh, my radio show is converted into a podcast, but I love the thought of broadcast radio. So with that, I developed a business plan. I created a list of what I thought 50 topics were could be. I could perhaps create the first years of content, and I begin to shop it to radio stations, talk radio stations in Mobile, Alabama, Pensacola, Montgomery, and Biloxi. And I found places that would take it on. And I began to call in favors from people that I'd met over 20 some odd years in the business who I thought were fascinating. What it's led to is a regional show uh, where I'm able to reach out to business owners who now after a year, they've heard of it. It's on at 6 p.m. on Wednesdays. They've heard of it and are willing to give up time on their calendar to be on the radio show. And it's a time where I can interview people about what it is that they do. The show is called What's Working with Cam Marston. We discuss workplace and workforce trends. I talk to business owners. I've got a show that I'll record tomorrow about the trends that are shaping their business, failures they've had, you know, unsuspecting surprises that hit to put them over the top. Tomorrow's show is with a guy who started a bottled water company. Now, you'd think in the year 2019, with Nestle and Coke in bottled water, you're not going to step into this marketplace. But here's a guy out of central Alabama, valedictorian from his high school, played football at the University of Alabama, and started a bottled water company. And I'm going to ask him, why? Why? You're up against these giants. Why would you do that? And I want to hear his story. And, and so the show satisfies my curiosity of why people are running their business and making the decisions the way they are. And it's purely, as I said, a labor of love. And I answer questions that I, and I ask questions that normally would be strange to ask somebody unless they were being broadcast. So you've been featured on the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Chicago Tribune, Business Week, Fortune, Money Magazine, Fast Company. What and man, that's that's a lot of cool opportunity there and a lot of exposure. What what is the coolest award or coolest feature you you've been a part of to date? I am a well, being broadcast on uh, Good Morning America was pretty cool. So I was in, they reached out, we'd like to interview, get interviews from him for a radio show. I was in New York City when they reached out. I went to my client, I'll never forget this, who was Estee Lauder. I was doing some work for them. And I said, I just got contacted by Good Morning America. Can we use a space in here for them to come over and interview me? They've got a, you know, it was in New York. They're just going to send a cameraman over. And they said, oh my gosh, yes. So they facilitated this for me and um, got interviewed and the interview was played on air, but it was just somebody interviewing me in the in this room. Uh, they were not one of the TV personalities. I was not on the set with them, uh, but I was. My interview was played on there. That was really cool. That's when you know you hope you you don't call your friends and say, "Hey, I'm going to be on Good Morning America," but you hope they see. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you call your parents, but you don't call your friends because it sounds a little. So that was really neat. Um, but I'm, I'm a big fan of the magazine called The Economist, and I'm a regular consumer of The Co Economist. And when The Economist said, we'd like to interview you to reference you in one of our articles on the demographic shift that, shifts that are impacting the workplace, I was like, oh, man, this is validation. I'm a big fan. If your name is my opinion, if you've been, con if you've been referred to in The Economist magazine, you're legit. And I thought that before they contacted me. So I uh, certainly agreed to the interview. And the calls that I got afterwards, the texts and the emails, were from the CEOs of the companies that I'd worked with. Wow. And to me, it was like, yeah, these are the people that read The Economist. 
And uh, the fact that they are impressed that I was in the magazine is pretty dang cool. You, you know? have found your audience. And you mentioned earlier in your interviews on your show that you talk about failures. Since we talked about the highlight, how are your? tell me a little bit about the failures you've had or, or the one that stands out. Well, I've had some there. We could spend the rest of the day. Um, <laughs> there are ideas that I've had that I would speak to my customers about, particularly in some video projects. I'm going to create a series of videos. They're going to include this content. Uh, what do you think? And the customers would say, it sounds great. Now, I interpreted it sounds great with, I'm going to buy it. And I created these videos and said, all right, they're ready. Go ahead and buy it. And they said, you know, not sure that's the, they look great and the content's great, but I'm not sure that's the medium we want this content delivered in. So I invested a lot of time and money creating a series of videos that today still have validity to them, but they didn't sell the way I thought they would. The lesson learned, uh, you, I specifically, can be very energized around an idea, but I need to release it slowly rather than build a huge product and then just rely on the goodwill of the customers to come out and buy it. I now realize I'm going to create a sample and release it slowly versus try to explode the marketplace with it because uh, the, the, the attention and enthusiasm given to products like that early on can fade in the time that it takes me to create them. And suddenly I've got this product ready for the marketplace and everybody says, that's a great idea, but it's just not what we need right now. And I'm looking at, looking at this inventory of videos and handouts and worksheets and stuff thinking, somebody needs to buy these things. <laughs> I'm kind of vulnerable. I'm over a barrel right now. Somebody please buy these things. So the lesson learned was tiptoe into new products. Uh, test them out before you jump. You know, I, I would do essentially a cannonball into the pool thinking this is going to be my retirement fund right here. And I learned the difficult way. Eh, maybe I should have thought that through a little differently. That's fascinating. You, um, I think that's a, a, a trend that we see on our podcast is, is people that have been successful. They've had a lot more failures than they've had successes and they've learned from those. Um, so if anyone's listening, I think that's the advice. You got to get out there. You got to do something. You got to challenge yourself. Uh, but ultimately, failure does lead to success. So I appreciate you saying that. One thing that was interesting, and I think this is something we find in our industry as well, is trends, is people that are trying to keep up with the Joneses. You have people that will uh, wait till something's really popular and say, oh, I want to do it. I want to do it. Um, what would be your advice to not only millennials, but uh, anyone that's in the workforce on how to be different and not only to, to, to how do you take your strength and become different, but how do you not just to, to try to, oh, I'm going to post this on Instagram because everybody's doing it. or I'm going to buy this because everybody's doing it. How, what is your advice on being different and how do they, they go about that? I find my employers who are looking for talent. And one of the things we're doing right now is developing a recruiting program for an insurance company because they need more talent. They need specific types of talent. They're looking for self-starters independent thinkers, creative thinkers, people who will come up with ideas and then uh, somewhat test the ideas. They're looking for, employers are looking for people who don't need to be shepherded, who need to be led, but not herded at the same time. There, there's a distinction between those two. Um, they're looking for good communicators. They always have and they always will be. But I predict even a greater shift coming forward as the ability to be a supportive, contributing, active, forward-thinking teammate is going to grow in demand. 
when I first entered the workforce 20 some odd years ago, the accountants, the attorneys, the data, the programmers, which way they were called back in the time, there weren't enough of them to go around. As technology continues to increase, those skills will continue to be important. But what's going to be more important is the ability to lead the teams because a lot of the technology is going to exist in the background. And I've got to be able to work with my teammates better. So employers today are looking for good team-oriented people who can take the bit in their mouth and run with it and come back to their manager, leader, boss, whoever it may be, and say, I've got an idea and I got three options for the way to pursue it. And I want to run these by you and then tell you the one that I like the most. So they're coming with ideas about pushing forward and ways to implement the ideas. They're not saying, well, what do I do now? What do you need me to do now? They're the ones that are pushing forward. And the people that have those behaviors in the workplace, invariably, regardless of their generation, let's be frank, are the ones that tend to do well. But per my employers that are recruiting, they're harder to find today. They're harder to find, perhaps due to parenting trends perhaps due to social media. I'm sure there's a parallel we can draw there. But the independent, forward-thinking person who can be a, a remarkable teammate and can give as much as lead to the team are precious in the workplace. So I ask anybody listening, millennials in particular, your question focused on the millennials, how, quote-unquote, needy am I versus how forward-thinking am I for the benefit of the team? If you can define yourself as needy or your employer, more importantly, would define yourself as needy, then you need to shift that and become more forward thinking. Now, a lot of that changes with confidence. A lot of that changes in learning your job, learning your marketplace, et cetera. But if you've been 18 months, two years on the job and still think you're kind of needy, then your career trajectory is likely very limited. I say get out there and push. It's and, and, and employers would disagree, but the truth is it's easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission. That's the way to go. Don't explode the company, but it's easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission. Don't be exploding companies out there, people. <laughs> yeah. So that that's awesome, man. Um, so tell us, what's the future with um, with your organization, with you? You mentioned that uh, after turning 50, you now want to do things that, that you want to do, not necessarily things that you should be doing. So what are some of the things on that list, and what can we see out of the future of, uh, of Cam Marston? It's a good question. I somewhat tongue-in-cheek call it Cam 2.0. We're on into Cam 2.0 right we now. We like Cam in this city, so this is good. Well, Cam 1.0 was 50 years in the making. Cam 2.0 will be 50 years in the, the decline. <laughs> So what will you? What can you expect from that? That's a great question. The focus of the research is going more into the future. I've spent 20-some-odd years looking at the past, the past. How have these generations been created? What are, the, what are the seeds that have created them, who they are today? And then we get up to the present. Therefore, here's how to manage and lead and sell, et cetera. And that's been my bread and butter, and it will continue to be a very important part of my work. But the hobby, CAM 2.0, includes what's going on in the future. We're calling it the re-architecting of business. And it means, how is business going to look 10 years from now? And what are two things I can do today to get us there? We're trying to find the answer to this question. And this is not an easy one. We've got researchers out there trying to figure out firsthand research, first-generation research, how to answer this question. What are the top 10 reasons your A players are going to quit 10 years from now? How do we, as managers, begin to prepare for that 10 years from now? And we'll also bring it in five years. What are your top 10 reasons your A players are going to quit five years from now? And how do we as managers prevent that from happening? So if we can gather those two pieces of information, 
uh, we can begin to advise our clients on here's where it's going. And these are the management and leadership talents you need right now. Start developing them now. Because 10 years seems like forever, but five years is around the corner. Let's begin to do these one or two things. Inherent in that is where's the workforce going? So we're studying challenges that teenagers are facing now, realizing that 10 years from now, those challenges could be in the workplace. So I've got data that I'll show today, for example, that is we are seeing an increased amount of chronic, is the way it's described, depression in 18-year-olds. Well, what we don't know is that, is that, is this a phase of a teenager? And when they're 28, depression has gone away. Or is a depressed 18-year-old today going to be depressed at 28? And what is a manager going to need to do about this? So the proportion of the, the teenagers today with this chronic depression has increased at rates we've never seen before. The question to be answered again, is it going to still be there? Um, what does that mean for the workplace? What does that mean for management? Early predictions. Don't hold me to this. The top 10 reasons people are going to quit their job 10 years from now is number one, work-life balance. If they're an A player, they're being pushed because the company needs them. And they're realizing with fewer and fewer A players, perhaps, they're standing out from the crowd. They're rare, they're precious, and they've had enough. In in incumbent on that, not incumbent on that, but aligned with that, is a move to second-tier cities. Second-tier city would perhaps be Charlotte. Uh, Third-tier city is my city, Mobile, Alabama. But I'm going to get out of this big, busy city where I'm being pushed all the time to seek a quality of life. Also, somewhat hand-in-hand, hand, top 10 reasons people may quit 10 years from now. Number two, maybe, and I'm not ready to say this for sure, loneliness. We are more alone today than we've ever been before. We as a human species are a tribal creature. We've lived much long in close-knit family groups than we ever have alone. But the social technology connects us with thousands of people on a regular basis. But we're more alone today than we've ever been before. What the four of us are doing around this table is unusual in some cases for people. So uh, work-life balance combined with loneliness is, in my hypothetical or my forecast, the reasons people will leave their workplace in 10 years from now to go solve these two problems. And it may lead to a, uh, uh, people are going to still rush to the tier one cities to find opportunity. They found their opportunity. They're working hard. They're asking the question at earlier ages, is this really it? I'm out of here. I'm going to go find a quality of life. So how does management prevent that? Which leads to the, the, the final part of my thesis, my hypothesis here. Managers 10 years from now will need to become much more intimately involved in their people's lives. They will have a role in their team's happiness. And I don't like the sound of that, but I think that's where it's going. Their individual's happiness. It won't just be driving them and steering them and leading them in the workplace, but making sure they're getting recreation, networking, finding friends, joining the leagues, the teams, et cetera, so that their happiness quotient is being filled and these managers can count on them coming to work the next day. That that's awesome. And I think a lot of people that are listening can, can take a lot of notes from that. You actually mentioned in one of your speeches that I got to, to uh, listen to um, that your wife played uh, volleyball at UNC. You got to interview the uh, UNC head coach who's been there, I believe, for 30 years and um, specifically talking about um, the changes in going after or I would say recruiting someone 20 years ago 
to now. 20 years ago, you could tell them, this is your four-year plan. This is what we're going to do. It's going to be great. Now he's had to transition that to, this is what we're going to do this week. This is what we're going to do today. This is what we're going to do in this hour. Yes. And I thought that was fascinating. Uh, I did play a sport, but that was you know 11 years ago. The reality of that, it, it was more, this is what we're going to do this year. This is going to be our season. So in, in between that, it's been pretty interesting to see where that growth is. Um, but that's awesome, man. So in, in closing, what we want to do is give anybody that's listening, obviously, an opportunity to get in touch with you, learn more about your organization. What's the best way to reach you if a corporation would like to bring you on to speak or to uh, to learn more about how, how you can help them? What's the best way to get in contact? The website is cammarston.com, C-A-M-M-A-R-S-T-O-N.com. You go there and all the contact information can be found there. Or you can email me directly, cam, C-A-M, at cammarston.com. Love it. Cam, I'm overwhelmed. You are a wealth of knowledge, and we are very honored to have you here today, and we certainly appreciate your time. I'm flattered for the invitation. I'm glad this worked out as well as it did. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Cam. Until next time on the Brand Butters Podcast, we appreciate you, and we'll be around. You've been listening to the Brand Builders Podcast, brought to you by the Dunstan Group with your host, Scott Dunstan and Brian Young. For branded merchandise and apparel that makes first impressions and ones that last, check out the Dunstan Group at dunstangroup.com.